I want to just go back to John 3, and we'll read from verse 1. There we are. And this week, we want to look at revealing the king. This is where Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, opens his understanding as to who Jesus actually is and what Jesus has come to do. So we're going to read from verse 1 again. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And again, we keep our text in. Amen. There we go. We keep our text in verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and the same came to Jesus by night. Last time we looked at this portion of Scripture, we looked at the fact that Jesus was revealing the truth to Nicodemus about salvation and about how repentance is required. We did look at this was a, a private meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. And in chapter 3, sometimes when you read chap, John chapter 3, it's a wonderful chapter, you tend to start to forget about Nicodemus after about verse 16 and 17. But this is where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus right through this particular chapter. And what Jesus was doing, he was trying to, as we've seen, trying to bring Nicodemus out of his inconsistency, his belief in the Word of God, and yet his inconsistency is that he doesn't accept it, or his understanding hasn't been opened yet, although Jesus is doing it now. You see, he already stated, as we've seen, that he recognized Jesus as a teacher sent from God. And this was quite an honor. This wasn't uh, just a nice thing, a nice polite thing to, to say to someone to make them feel good. Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, would know the brevity of what he was saying. And therefore, he said and recognized Jesus as a teacher sent from God. He also admitted that John the Baptist was a prophet. Yet when Jesus told them what both John the Baptist and Jesus had said uh, and what they knew to be true, instead of receiving it, he doubted it, and he hesitated, and he even challenged what Jesus was telling him. Because as we've seen last time we looked at this, this, this inward change that is required, uh, it blew everything his religious life had taught him out of the water. It was a complete rethink on the Word of God and on his relationship with God, which he thought was secure because of his heritage as of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in John 3, we see a revelation of who Jesus really was. He was revealed as the begotten Son of God, Son of Man, and revealed as God had sent His Son. And we know that from verse 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so as we look at this begotten son, we need to understand that this is a designation from the Messiah, taken from, indeed, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. You know, Jesus is begotten, and he is eternal. But begotten does not speak of his being born, but his relationship, as it were, with the Father and his nature. And as to his relationship, he is in the Father, and he is one with the Father. As to his nature, he is the same substance in that he is fully God. He's not half God, half man. He is fully God and fully man. And so today, the idea of begotten, it encompasses human conception of being born. The term is used uh, elsewhere in the Bible to denote the relationship between a father and a son. Uh, uh, Abraham begot Isaac, and you can go through the begots there in the Old Testament. But changing begotten to its proper uh, translation is unique or only. It teaches us that Jesus is indeed one of a kind. The International Standard Version translates John 3.16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his uniquely existing son so that everyone who believes in him would not be lost but have eternal life. So what it means uh, for the son to be begotten is not the same as it means for us to be begotten. Now, the Orthodox Jewish Bible, uh, it translates it, and don't worry about the Hebrew. I'm not a great Hebrew scholar, but we'll go through these words uh, in a moment. It says, For Hasham so had Ava, Agape, for the Olam Hazav that Hashan gave the Matana to the gift of Hashams ben Yaqid, so that whoever has a mana in him may not be Ne'evad, but find and it's, I think it's pronounced Shev Olam. So while that's on the screen, and you can look at it, Hashem is a Hebrew term for God. And what it literally means is the name, the precious name of God. We all know in the Bible, the Hebrew word for God is made up from, of four vowels. It's called a tetragrammaton. It's Y-H-W-H. And according to tradition, it was only pronounced on Yom Kippur, uh, by the high priest. So saying God's name was considered a very serious and powerful thing. So much so that one of the Ten Commandments indeed prohibits us from saying God's name in vain. So as a result, the, the people come up with different substitutions where they could refer to God and Hashem, or Hashem, sorry, is one of them. Then you see the word agape, that means love. Now, Olam Hazaf is the Hebrew word meaning this word. Now, Hashem's ben uh, Yaqad means God's unique one of a kind. That's, I am told, from the original writings, which would have been in Hebrew, then translated into Greek. This means unique one of a kind. So Jesus was one of a kind. There was no one like him. There never will be. There never was. He is God manifest in flesh. And it's just, you know, as when we are begotten, we have been born. The term begotten when applied to Jesus is not speaking of birth, as I've said, but of relationship and of nature. 
the nature of the Son and the relationship between the Son and the Father. And the relationship aspect of begotten is best described by Jesus himself. When he said in John, 30, John 10 verse 30, I and my Father are one. Then John 14 and 7, he said, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Then Matthew eleven twenty seven, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, and neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So we see Jesus here revealing himself to Nicodemus. He's saying that he is in the Father. He is saying that he and the Father are one. When John uses the term monogenesis, begotten, he is saying something specific about that relationship of Jesus to the Father. He is saying that they are one in the same way that you are one with your thoughts. They are one. The nature aspect of begotten describes the substance of God. The Father is the same essence as the Son. And the Son is not something other than the Father. They are titles of the same person. Jesus is indeed God manifest in flesh. We know to us son is descriptive of a human relationship with which we're all familiar. It literally means a child born of a mother and a father. But only begotten son suggests the idea of the individual being the only person standing in that relationship to him who is termed the father. So what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, what he's revealing to him in reference to the Messiah whom Nicodemus came to ask had the Messiah come. When he is, uh, Jesus, in reference to the Messiah, when he's calling himself the only begotten Son of God, we are taught that he is, he is of the same nature with the Father, that is, he is God. And the word Son suggests the idea when it has the description only begotten attached to it, or when he's called God's own Son. So the Messiah that Jesus is revealing to Nicodemus, the only begotten Son of God, the individual, the unique one, his proper divinity, therefore, is asserted. And so this teacher he sent to Nicodemus that you recognized is actually the Savior of the world. He is Almighty God manifest in flesh. Why? That he may pay the debt owed for the sins of man. And the man that you recognize as a prophet said of him in John 1.29, the next day John saith Jesus coming unto him and saying, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. So this change of mind, this U-turn which Jesus was telling Nicodemus he had to take, he was telling him why the Messiah came. He wasn't a military ruler. He wasn't a great warrior who was going to deliver Israel from Roman oppression and make the whole world tributaries unto Israel. He came for man's greatest need, and that was sin. And Nicodemus had to rethink, because all his life he had been taught to obey the law, to obey even the, the extra laws. I think there's something, if I can remember right, I think it's about 366 extra rules that the Pharisees attached to the law. And he thought that therefore... When they did this, that they were righteous before God, and because of their inheritance as the children of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would enter the kingdom when the Messiah returned. And so this thought Jesus is telling him is not what the Messiah is about. The Messiah came to deliver man from his sins, and man needed to repent, to turn, to have a change of heart, to have a change 
of mind. He then goes on into verse 13. And he says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You know, one thing to recognize in all the private discourses that that Jesus had with different individuals, when he spoke to the woman at the well, uh, when he spoke to uh, uh, Nicodemus here, he spoke to them, uh, I don't know a better way to put it, at their level. He spoke to them in, a, in phrases, and we know he spoke in parables, he spoke in words uh, that they would have understood. Metaphors, parables, that they would understand what he's on about. And as we continue to look at this private audience that Nicodemus had with Jesus, we would do well to understand that that in their conversation there are things that we need to look at a wee bit closer so that we can properly understand what Jesus was actually saying. As we've looked at begotten, begotten's a whole different meaning to us today than it was back then. And so here we see another phrase and an example when Jesus referred to himself as the Messiah or referred to himself as the Son of Man. Again, it's John 3, 13 and 14, where he said, that he that come down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we looked at that, uh, what that man to being born lifted up. It was exalted to a higher level. It was exalted above all. It was worshipped. And so when Jesus is worshipped, when Jesus is lifted up, when men look to him as a Messiah, then indeed they are healed, they are saved, and Jesus transforms them. So son of man, this is a designation that Jesus used frequently of himself, more frequently than any other. A designation that he used. Taken by itself, uh, it seems just a Hebraism for man. We read earlier on there, Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that I visitest, visitest him. We all know in Hebrew poetry, parallelism is used, and the son of man, uh, sorry, in Hebrew poetry, parallelism is used. Man and the son of man are equivalent expressions. So to understand the meaning when Jesus, uh, which Jesus used as a designation of the Messiah, we go to Psalm 80, verse 17. Let thy hand be upon the, the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest for thy glory. So let thy hand be upon thy right hand. When we talk about the right hand of God, we talk about fellowship. We talk about strength. Upon the son of man whom thou madest for thyself. Excuse me. Amen. Now I know why James put that fan on his form up here. The same person who's spoken of in Psalm 80, verse 15. If you go back, and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thy made is strong for thyself. This is another prophetical designation of the Messiah, the branch which the Lord had made for himself. We find the origin of this designation, no doubt, no doubt in reference to the Messiah, in Daniel 7, verse 13. 
And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Here he is spoken of, not as a Son of Man, but like unto the Son of Man, or having the appearance of a man. Now, while the expression Son of Man, with the expression of Son of Man, as we have seen, it's just an equivalent uh, phrase to man itself. The designation Son of Man at once marks the Messiah as truly man, and at the same time, distinguished from all other men. He is distinguished in a variety of ways, as the perfect or the normal man, the representative man, the second Adam, the God-man, God manifest in flesh, the predicted man, and the great subject of Old Testament prophecy. God alone is the fountain of authority, the source of judgment and of mercy. And he asserts the divine government, divine rights of divine government and gives pardon and salvation to follow the fallen man. How he did this was he sent his unique, one-of-a-kind son to bring salvation to those who believe in him. We're told in Acts 4 verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. And you know, as you look at these terms uh, and you try to understand more of, of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and how Nicodemus would have understood these things that Jesus, these phrases that Jesus was using, these designations that were given to the Messiah we know that he did give his life to the Lord and he did serve the Lord. And he, in fact, in his death, uh, he was one of the ones that took the body uh, and put it in the cave. But what I see in Nicodemus was a man who was prepared to change. A man who was prepared to change. It took Jesus to stop Paul on the road to Damascus and blind him to get him to turn to the Lord. But here's a man who just sat down with years and years. We don't know his age. We can guess being a Pharisee, uh, he's in his 30s at least, but more than likely older. So here's a lifetime of learning, a lifetime of study. He sees this man, hears all about this man. He hears John the Baptist saying that the kingdom is coming. He recognizes John the Baptist as a prophet. He then hears the miracles. We don't, we don't know, maybe even seen uh, some of the miracles, maybe even was there to witness the wisdom of Jesus when he spoke. But he was touched so much by what was going on and his desire indeed for the return of the, of the Messiah to deliver them from oppression, that he needed to go and talk to Jesus. But he went expecting Jesus to agree with him, expecting Jesus to confirm what he believed. And what a shock it must have been for him to sit there and listen and then understand that if I'd have just continued to live my life the way I'm living it, I would have been lost if I'd have lived my life in religion, I would have been lost and would not have come into the kingdom of God. But he had a big enough heart to hear Jesus talking to him. To hear Jesus telling him he needed to repent. John had told him, and that pricked his heart because he had said John was a prophet. Now this man whom he called a teacher was telling him the same thing. You need to repent. And that's a big challenge for men today. 
is to repent. They want to sit and have a private conversation with Jesus. And they want to bargain with Jesus. You know, he could have said, well, you know, I was born into the Israel. I was brought up as a Pharisee. And I can't change my... He didn't say that. But there's people today, they'll say, you know, I would like to come to church. I would like to come to Jesus. But you know something? I want to continue living the life I live. I'm a human being. God would understand. Well, you see, God understood Nicodemus that he still told him he needed to repent. And God understands fallen man today and understands the grip that Satan has on their lives and understands the misunderstanding they have of the word of God because the word of God says that Satan hath blinded the eyes of them that believe not. And so our calling as we have conversations with people is to follow what Jesus did. Speak at their level. Tell them things that they will understand. But preach the gospel to them. Tell them you need to repent. Tell them you need to do more than put your hand up on a church service and pray a sinner's prayer. You need to repent. You need to change your life. This man, a very religious man, you need to change your life. You're following the law of God. Well done. But you need to repent of your sins. You need to repent of your sins. And that means turn from your sins. And there are people being told today, look, don't worry, God understands. Yes, he does. God understands your weakness. God understands how difficult it may be for you to turn from your sins, to turn from the life you are living. Some people have had horrific lives. And the way they think the day, they're maybe full of hatred, maybe full of anxiety, maybe full of fear, maybe full of anger at God even. I remember speaking to a man who was angry at God because he was abused as a child and he prayed and God never delivered him. And he was angry at God. But he needed to change his heart to know that God was with him. God eventually delivered him. From what I'm told, he did give his heart to the Lord. But it's this challenge that are we afraid to challenge people today? Because it's not politically correct to tell someone they're a sinner. It's not politically correct to tell someone actually what you're doing is against the law of God. It's not, you could end up in court, believe it or not, if you stopped a lady heading to an abortion clinic and told her, look, what you're doing is a sin. You need to turn to God and God will see you through this. You can be arrested. You see, Jesus could have been arrested because what he said to Nicodemus in the Jewish eyes was blasphemous. And Nicodemus could have went and had him arrested for blasphemy. But he didn't back down, Jesus. He told the truth. But he told it in love. And Nicodemus reckoned that love. And then Nicodemus began to realize who it was, whose presence it was that he was sitting in. This is the Messiah. This is almighty God. And you know, you mightn't agree with my doctrine. Whatever your view is on the Godhead, the point is God died on the cross. And that's amazing. That's love beyond love. That's infinite love. That's love that has been shed abroad in our hearts, but it's love that we are called to share with the world, with fallen man. 
not as judges with big Bibles beating them, but in love and mercy, bringing them to a life where they can have real peace, bringing them away from the broken cisterns of this world, from this thirsty land into the well of our salvation where they will never thirst again. So in your private audience with Jesus, if he challenges your concept of salvation, would you accept it? Your private audience with Jesus, if he challenges your concept of how you're living, would you listen to him? And would you repent? Because that's what he's calling us to do. In love and in mercy, he's reaching out to each and every one of us. I just love that psalm that we read at the communion table this morning. And I often think about it and I've just, I've probably told you this before, I have a picture in my mind of David standing, looking at the beauty of the mountains and the hills, looking at the beauty of the trees, the rivers, the seas, looking at the animals, the birds, looking as far as he could look up to the skies to see the sun, the moon, the stars. And as a realization came to him, what is man? that thou art mindful of him. You can just see his heart being overcome with love and admiration for the Lord. And as you look about you today, especially if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, what are you that God would die on the cross for your sins? There's people in this world wouldn't even give you a cup of water, <laughs> but Jesus gave you his life that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. And so church, as the musicians come back, do you recognize the Messiah for what he came to do? Do you recognize who the Messiah was? Do you recognize what, like Nicodemus did, what the Messiah did on the cross? And are you prepared to follow him and live for him? And even as a Christian, are you prepared there's something in my life that I need to repent from, to turn from, and just give it to Jesus. Because we all, we're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect until the Lord comes back. But there are things in our lives which we could clean up. There are things in our lives which we could ask God to keep a watch on. The psalmist, a man full of praise, he said, set a watch over my mouth, set a gate over the doors of my lips. That little thing in there, it could be very dangerous. Do we need to repent from our words? God and mercy is reaching out to strengthen you and to help you. Don't look so sad. Be happy. It's God. He died on the cross for your sins. Let's stand in his presence. Can I ask the elders to please come forward? We have a request for the prayer.